following message is from a guest speaker of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found at emmanuelcommunity.org. Morning, everyone. It's uh, great to have you all here today. This is something new that we're doing, something we really haven't ever done before. But on this Sunday, we're putting a special focus on this issue of mental health. Uh, Because we think it's a really important issue. Uh, Really, ever since the pandemic has started, um, even in my own pastoral counseling, just been hearing from quite a few of you as to um, the struggles that you've been having in various ways. And although in some ways it feels like we're over the worst of it and we're now back in person and the lockdown is behind us, uh, I, I think what I've also heard is that you still don't quite feel yourself yet and that for some of you it's an unnamed unknown type of anxiety or discouragement or depression some of you it's something very specific maybe related to a loss of a loved one and you're grieving that loss or other circumstances that have happened in your life and so today we really want to put a spotlight on the issue of mental health and really uh, um, advocate for that at our church of even getting help uh, professionally uh, if at all possible um, And so I want to just share with you just a few minutes, and then I'm going to really give the lion's share of time to our guest speaker, Irene, who's going to share a bit more on this topic of mental health. Um, And so let me just share with you a little bit, and then I'm going to invite her to come on forward. And then please go to that slido.com and put ICCMH into the event code. And I think there's already like a dozen questions up there. If you want to upvote certain questions that you'd love to see addressed, immediately following her talk, she as well as Jean Lee will come up and answer as many of those questions as we can get through during a Q&A during the service right here in the sanctuary. Okay? And so uh, why don't you join with me in a brief word of prayer, and then we will uh, get right into it. God, as we gather as your people, um, we invite really the work of your spirit in each one of us. Um, We think about um, the weight that many of us are carrying, especially in these last couple of years, that may be really um, burdens that we're carrying in secret, things that we're not really even comfortable sharing with one another. And yet, uh, you know all of the the pains and the struggles we've been going through. And so we pray that through um, your love for us and the work of the Holy Spirit in us, that as a community, we might be able to support one another and Uh, lean into each other and help each other out to um, really get the help that we need. And um, whether it's through professional counseling or pastoral counseling or even what's shared in a small group setting or in an act of worship, we just pray that through all of those different means that it would be ultimately you who is meeting us there as the good shepherd, as the one who cares for our souls. And so we just pray this this time to be used uh, for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Just picture a woman by the name of Judy, who's 45 years old. She's an HR consultant with three kids. She's also a believer. But earlier in the year, she was diagnosed with ovarian cancer. She recently underwent surgery for that cancer, and now she is undergoing aggressive chemotherapy. And Judy has always been a problem solver. And so she tackled her cancer like just one more problem that needed to be fixed in her life. So she went on the internet, 
and did a ton of research and found the right clinic to treat her for the cancer. She's changed her lifestyle and her diet. Um, And frankly, the doctors are hopeful that through all of these interventions that Judy is going to survive the cancer. But oddly, recently, Judy has gone down a very dark hole. She's found it almost impossible to get out of bed in the morning. And she's been losing weight, not only because of the cancer, but because she has no appetite. Really, it's as if she's losing her will to live. And although she's been an active member of a church, lately she refuses to go to church with her family on Sundays or be part of the small group. And her faith had always been strong. She's even served in leadership. But she can't shake the belief that God has abandoned her. She even believes that God is punishing her for some sins that she committed during her college days. She's now experiencing what she would describe as panic attacks and has even had thoughts of self-harm and suicide. And if Judy was your friend, how would you approach her? And how would you think through what this woman is going through? Is her problem a theological issue? She's believing all the wrong things, and so we just need to get good teaching in her so we could fix her. Maybe you would say it, it is a mental health issue. She's experiencing clinical depression. It's a psychological issue. So she needs counseling or maybe even antidepressants. Maybe you would say, listen, this is not rocket science. It's a physical issue. People who go through cancer regularly experience this kind of stuff. And you don't need anything more than the cancer diagnosis to explain what Judy is going through. Anyone undergoing what she's going through would feel this way. Maybe you would say it's a spiritual battle issue. And there's nothing less than demonic forces that are plaguing her and giving her these negative thoughts. And so she needs deliverance. She needs prayer. Which answer would you lean toward? Because maybe what I would argue is that I think all of these things could be true from a biblical framework. And what I would also argue is that when you look at how the Bible describes us, it doesn't try to dissect us in all of these ways as physical or spiritual or mental and psychological. I would say that God cares for Judy as a whole person in every way. And that there is mental distress in her life that needs attention. I think about Mount Carmel with Elijah there taking on the priests of Baal. And after this amazing victory over these prophets and priests, these pagan gods, um, Elijah, interestingly, went into what I think in my modern vocabulary would be described as a depression. In 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 2, It says that Jezebel sent word to Elijah that said, "Um, I will have you dead by tomorrow. And Elijah doesn't understand how after such a great victory, things could go so wrong. There was no revival in Israel. There was no great turnaround in this nation of Israel. And utterly discouraged and scared out of his mind, 
Elijah runs away into the desert. It's an odd reaction if you think about it, but that's the only thing he can think of to do is to literally run for his life until he collapses under a tree and basically has a death wish. He just wants to die. And it's in that place of utter discouragement that God met him. In 1 Kings 19, verse 3 to 9, Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there. While he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, he came to a broom bush, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I have had enough, Lord. He said, take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the bush and fell asleep. All at once, an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. He looked around, and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank, strengthened by that food. He traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. There he went into a cave and spent the night. And the word of the Lord came to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? I find that last part to be really amusing because it was really under God's prompting that he ended up in this mountain. But there on the mountain, rested now and nourished by this food, God asked Elijah, why are you here? Why are you here? Because I think what God is saying to Elijah is that you are on this journey and I have brought you into this mountain to heal you because there's some really deep need for that healing in your life. It's interesting that the first thing he did was not to preach at Elijah, but to just feed him. Because as we said, the body and the, and the mind and the heart are all sewn together into a whole being, and God cares for that whole being. And every aspect of our being must be cared for if we're really going to find wholeness. To talk about mental health is to talk about spiritual health. It's really just to talk about health, period, isn't it? And that's why we're focusing specifically on maybe one dimension of that health, what we're calling mental health. I could say a lot more, but I feel like I would just be robbing from you from what I think is the most valuable part of our time. And so I'm going to invite uh, our sister Irene Cho to come up. We've been working together through this initiative of trying to get pastors and counselors together and to figure out how our mutual professions can really complement one another. And over the course of working together with Irene, I've just been so impressed by her wisdom, her heart. Honestly, with her and Jean here, if I were to send anyone to a counselor, I would try to get you guys in with those two first. The only problem is their, their practice is always full, so I can never get in with them. But I think they are two of the most gifted counselors I've really met. And so let me give the time over to Irene, and then afterwards we're going to have both her and Jean take part in this Q&A session. So why don't we welcome Irene really warmly as she comes and shares with us. <laughs> Hey, welcome, uh, happy day today for everybody. Thank you so much for inviting me here. I usually, I was just telling Jean um, before I came up that I usually rely on like anonymity before something like this that I could just kind of come and talk about some things and then, and then leave, um, hoping that you know, I won't run into anybody that I talk to. But in a size of a group like this, mostly Asians and probably related to some of you in this room, um, and I'm probably going to run into you at some point. So I can't really rely on that for comfort because it's not typically my, um, 
Like it's not my comfort zone to come up and talk um, about things in this kind of setting, but I've really felt like God has been calling me to talk about um, this super important topic of mental health, as Pastor Steve has said, and I'm so excited and take um, for any opportunity that I can take to kind of talk about mental um, health in a way that destigmatizes it, kind of normalizes it for, for the rest of us. So thank you so much for inviting me here. As it, just you inviting me here um, is kind of like you're confronting that for your church, and I'm just excited to see so many churches um, kind of taking that step to recognize the importance of mental health um, in our lives. So uh, before I begin, I, I wanted to share a little bit about um, myself and Jean. Jean is, Jean is going to do mostly question and answer time at the end, as Pastor Steve said, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do most of the talking today. But I usually like to um, know a little bit about the people that are talking when I'm listening to a talk. So Jean um, was born and raised in the Chicagoland area. Uh, she has an undergraduate degree from UC Berkeley, um, a doctorate in psychology um, at, from Fuller, um, and let's see. Um, and in 2006, she started her private practice in Evanston. And then this is me and my family. Um, I grew up in the south suburbs of Chicago. Um, I have an undergraduate degree from Northwestern. My graduate degree was um, from Wheaton College, and I'm married with two kids. Um, my oldest is a junior at Wheaton College, and my youngest just committed to um, going to the University of Illinois in the fall. Um, and um, I've been married for 26 years. And I've been private practice in Naperville for, um, since 2007. Um, when I first graduated from Wheaton College in 1995, I was uh, one of the only Asian counselors I knew of in the Chicago, Chicagoland area, and I really didn't expect to see a lot of Asian American clients. Um, and probably for the first decade of my work, I, I really didn't see a whole lot of Asians coming in. And um, it was around the time that I started my private practice in 2007 that I started seeing some more Asian clients. Um, and these, but these clients were coming from really far different distances to come see me because I was one of the only few Asian counselors in the area. Um, and so we were always constantly battling the fact of the distance and we really had um, struggled with outcomes because of that and um, it was just really difficult to get um, momentum. You know, people were f driving from an hour away. Usually they would tag on like an H-Mart visit because my office is literally right behind the H-Mart, um, and they would just spend the whole day coming to talk to me. It really was difficult because it wasn't um, super effective and wasn't seeing the outcomes that I was hoping for. But I really didn't like think too much about it um, until around 2015 when uh, the, the issues or the things that were coming up were a lot more severe, like people were talking about failed marriages or really struggling children, sometimes even suicides that kind of came so unexpectedly. Um, and so at that time, I was also in a Bible study at my church, and we were studying um, Nehemiah. Sorry. And in that Bible study, um, God had kind of revealed some things to my heart. Um, and so in that Bible study, uh, one thing that kind of stuck out to me is this idea that um, when Nehemiah, he was this Israelite um, official, and he was kind of high up there um, during the time right after the Babylonian captivity. 
And so um, there, I think uh, the, the temple had already been rebuilt, but the walls around uh, the city were still broken down and in, uh, were kind of um, not fully established around the city. And scripture says that when Nehemiah heard the walls of Jerusalem were still broken, he sat down and wept, fasting and praying before God. It was like during that Bible study and at that time also seeing so many people that were struggling in my own personal family life as well as what I was seeing in my client population, I really heard God saying, you know, it's as if like um, my people, you know, they, they're successful, they have built these wonderful lives, but the walls around their life, around the area of mental health, were really broken down and not um, established. And we were, they were being sort of vulnerable to some of the struggles um, in their lives. Because what good is it if you have a lot of wealth and a lot of success, but you're, you're kind of, you're alone because um, you're struggling in these other aspects of your emotional life. So let's see. Today, my goals for today are that, um, you know, I, I really want to celebrate um, culture, our culture, because sometimes when I do talks like this, it's heavily focused on some of the obstacles that, um, you know, kind of affect us in our Asian American lives. And so um, one of the things that I, I want to do today is just kind of start with a celebration of culture um, and also kind of talk about how culture affects us overall. Um, and so, and the environment that we grew up in and how that affects how we see things. Um, and I'm also gonna talk a little bit about potential challenges that Asian Americans face and how to determine, or not just Asian Americans, but people in general kind of face in the area of mental health and um, how to determine if we should go for help and where we should go um, if we do decide that we want to pursue some kind of um, help in this area. Um, but first I thought we could begin, oops, sorry. First I thought we could begin with a celebration of um, culture. I wanted to talk about um, a little bit about that. And the thing that came up for me the most was this thought that perhaps I could show this video. This video is a, um, a YouTube video of an experiment that they did, the Breeze Company, which is a laundry detergent company, actually did with um, moms and children in the Philippines. So. We're going to show that right now. Because emotions aren't considered as important as, as important as other needs, like physical needs or spiritual needs, especially in Asian American culture, um, many of us are left alone in our growing up as well as adults to manage really difficult feelings alone. Um, as children, we would be defenseless if our parents didn't provide food and shelter for us. And many of our parents understand that these needs you know, are legitimate. Um, and they focus on those, you know, like food, especially in Asian culture, is considered such a legitimate need, you know, and so you often see um, big food spreads or big food tables at places, but um, in terms of emotional needs, a lot of Asian parents especially, and parents in general, don't always see the, the, the need for, um, you know, to talk about emotions or to attend to emotions. And then in, on top of that, if you're a child of an immigrant, um, you, you may have the mentality that mental health issues are more of a luxury or, or even just a weakness in character. Um, because immigrant parents are pouring so much into and sacrificing for, for us, um, 
They might even see mental health problems as a weakness or a failure in their own parenting. Um, and children can feel like they're letting their parents down if they have these struggles. And uh, if we've been left alone in really difficult feelings more than we should, um, what I've seen happen in my practices with people is that we're often more likely to develop a critical or perfectionistic voice when it comes to the way that we talk to ourselves. Um, Asian Americans are often are overly critical and perfectionistic in their voice. Um, children, as you know, they tend to be more black and white thinkers. And when they're hurt or they've messed up, they catastrophize or think that think in these more all-or-nothing ways. And they also assume that everything bad that's happening is either their fault or somebody else's. Um, and so we need repeated episodes of hearing our parents' voice of reassurance um, and compassionate non-judgmental conversation to help us to entertain factors that were maybe not in our control or you know, um, see things in a more compassionate way. And so without that, those kind of conversations that are happening alongside of us as we grow, um, we often don't develop that nurturing or compassionate voice that individuals need to protect themselves from things like depression and anxiety. Um, I was, as growing up, I was always like so uh, confused when my non-Asian friends would be able to say, oh, you know, like, well, I just did the best I could, so, you know, I'm, I'm just going to move on, it's okay. And I always thought to myself, like, how can they do that? That just seems so, so simple, right? Well, and I think it's like, um, f f you know, either I would think that or I would think, oh, they're just so weak, you know? <laughs> Like, I'm not going to do that because then I'm going to fail, you know? So that development of that um, critical voice is kind of essential in performance, but at the same time it has to be to, um, balanced with more of a nurturing voice. And that is sometimes what I see when you're left alone and your feelings too much, there's this overdevelopment of this critical or judgmental voice. So, so many of the people um, that I see struggle with this ability to be compassionate and feel pride in who they are. They haven't um, heard enough how valuable they are for just being themselves. And they kind of mistakenly then pick up the belief that love was conditional and very performance-based. So um, they have this kind of chronic feeling of not being good enough, and more of that critical voice drives everyday lives and relationships. This then gets kind of translated in all relationships, both in career and at home, and um, they burn themselves out or they feel bitter for not being validated or valued enough um, by their loved ones. And the idea of just like being present to their loved ones or being loved simply for being themselves is kind of foreign and feels very out of reach. Um, this sits up, sets up issues in intimacy and a pattern that gets passed down, sometimes to your own children. Um, like you don't want to be critical or of your children, your spouse, like maybe you know that that's not been good in your own life, and yet sometimes there's this repeated pattern of not being able to stop even though you want to, um, or even not simply not even recognizing that you're being critical in your life. Oh yeah, I was going to tell you, have some of you have seen the movie Encanto, it's widely popular, right? Um, and the character that I resonated the most was Louisa, the overachiever, the perfectionistic one who was like carrying donkeys like on her back all the time, not sure she was going to be able to handle and feeling like she needed to achieve all the time in order to be uh, valuable. She says um, in that 
in the movie, I'm pretty sure I'm worthless if I can't be of service. And I thought, oh, like it hit me. A lot of my clients will say, have you seen Encanto? Especially the um, clients of immigrant children because they can really resonate to that movie. Um, so the fifth area is that um, and not being validated or openly um, having our emotions reflected in our lives, we sometimes don't develop a language for expressing our emotions. Kind of like if you, you know, never heard a, a certain language, you wouldn't be able to quite understand it or to be able to speak it easily. So vulnerable emotions like hurt, fear, sadness, and even more like the positive feelings of pride um, are sometimes difficult to articulate. And while we may be able to express these things to each other in like the beginning of a romance or in crisis type moments, the everyday expression of feelings and the owning of our feelings can sometimes be awkward or even embarrassing. Um, without a language for expressing our deep emotions and feelings, we kind of heavily rely on analyzing intellectual and reasoning abilities. And the problem with this is that deep bonds and a secure attachment with the ones we love are never built on logic and reason. Um, like imagine a man saying to his potential wife, I want to marry you out of principle and obligation, right? Like it just doesn't work. That feeling of security isn't felt. So it's through that secure uh, emotion that secure attachment is formed. And if our loved ones share deeper feelings, vulnerabilities, or fears, sometimes when you don't have this language, we default to trying to fix, problem solve, or give advice instead of validating and being present because knowing how to do this and do it consistently is not very well developed. So um, the last area I think that um, comes up a lot for clients is uh, this area of shame. And I guess when I was thinking about um, shame, I, sometimes I think about the fact that shame kind of gets a bad rap, but it really is not necessarily just a bad emotion. Shame is an emotion um, that is essential in kind of course correcting us and helping us to identify if we're a little bit off track. Um, so that experience of shame isn't necessarily bad and actually it's really adaptive in collectivistic cultures to kind of be comparing and looking at other people and seeing where we uh, measure up. And so that emotion in and of itself isn't bad, but um, Maladaptive shame is more what I kind of see more often in my offices too, is just this pervasive sense of not being good enough that kind of comes from inside. You might have this like standard that you feel that you want to reach, this expectation, and you always feel like you're falling short. But this can also come from, um, uh, we're seeing like a lot of research that shame, maladaptive shame can be developed when parenting um, is critical or when there is like, um, you know, perfectionistic standards in parenting. Um, and I would say that the, sometimes even in Asian families in particular, shame is considered like a, a valid way of parenting or of kind of getting our kids um, in line. So I do think that I feel like that shame component kind of comes up sometimes more with Asian American clients. The action tendency for shame is to kind of hide or to isolate um, so when you're experiencing that, a lot of people want to pull away. Um, and many people that I've seen um, have to really overcome their feelings of shame in order to reach out to others and be real with others in relationships. But that sense of needing to like save face can make it really difficult to feel connected. And a lot of my clients will say that they feel kind of fake, that they can't really um, say what's really going on underneath. 
which then contributes to these feelings of secrecy and an inability to gain adequate support from loved ones, from church friends and small groups, um, other valuable support systems in their life. So how might we know if we need to get help? Um, I went to a talk at Harvest Church uh, several years ago to a men's group, and one guy you know, raised his hand after I shared some of this stuff, and he said, yeah, I'm asking for a friend, though. You know, he didn't want me to think I was asking for him. And you know, when I think about this um, topic, I always ask myself the question, like, why don't we go for help? Why don't I want to go for help? You know, I've, I've struggled with the same things that probably all of you um, have thought about in this area as well. Many people say it's the stigma, it's the cost, it's the time involved, and, and I agree that all of those things are true. But when I really think about, like, why don't I want to go for help, it's like this idea that I have this inner voice inside that's kind of asking myself the question, like, how bad does it have to get, right? Like, how bad is so bad? Um, and I think that everybody is on a continuum as to whether they, how they decide if they're going to go in for help or how they're, when, they're, when they're going to do it, you know? And like, like my husband has like a horrible back problem right now, but he's kind of like limping along, you know? And, and he's saying, oh, I don't need to go for help. And I was thinking about an example in my own life where I had, um, it's kind of a dumb example, but I bought this stool. So that's that picture of the stool. And the stool, it was from Ikea, and I kind of hate Ikea, because it, it never, whenever I'm putting stuff together, it never works out. Um, but in this case, I bought this stool, and it, one of the legs just never stayed on. But I didn't really want to go, it was so cheap, and I didn't want to go back to get it fixed, so I just kind of left it there. And every now and then, I would go past it. It wasn't really bugging me that much. I knew that it sort of looked okay, but if I tried to put weight on it, it would, it would fall out under me. And it really wasn't a problem for me because I, I didn't use it that much until the one day when my mother-in-law came over <laughs> and she went to go sit on it. And I could kind of see it happening like in slow motion. And I was sort of trying to get her to her before she got to it. And she went down like hard on this stool and the look of betrayal on her face, <laughs> I still feel it, um, you know, when I'm thinking about it. And that was the point where I'm like, you know what? I'm going to fix this darn stool because it's not worth it. It looks great on the outside, but it really doesn't function. It's not working, and I've just been sort of making it limp along. So that idea that inside we're constantly trying to, like, resist this idea that we need to go in to get help is, like, just normal, you know? And we all have to decide where are we on that continuum and sometimes, like, I see people when there's been, like, a big thing, you know, like cancer diagnosis, a loss, um, you know, something major is happening in their lives. But I really kind of want to start seeing people when, you know, when it's not as severe because the prognosis is so much better um, if we can do that. Um, so let's see. So what are the, when, because self-reflection, the heart is sort of, deceptive, like we can kind of keep going along justifying ourselves. And some of these things are the things that I have up here. I tell myself that I can handle it, or I tell myself it'll get better once I get that promotion, once the kids are older, um, once, you know, this big thing is over. Um, I also say that, you know, it's not me sometimes, like I'll blame something else, um, or it's not that bad. Um, the other one I'd say a lot is like, I, know, I don't know what to talk about. You know, I'll, I'll kind of look like an idiot. 
Um, the, the last one is sometimes I've said to myself, well, talking just makes it worse, right? I don't like how it feels when I talk. And all of these are like legitimate things that cause us to resist and sort of justify the need to go in. So one of the things that I think is, if you're kind of on that fence and you don't know, like, am I just like justifying it to myself or is this really a problem that I want to start looking at sooner than later? Um, I asked these questions, or I've kind of put a list of questions together around what people can um, think about that might be some warning flags that maybe you want to consider going in for treatment sooner or even just starting to look into some of these issues because clearly counseling isn't the only, only option, right? So the first is like someone who knows you well, a pastor, um, a doctor. I get so many referrals from doctors because people come in with like a real physical symptom, like stomach aches, chronic headaches, um, you know, panic attacks, but um, they have no real physical origin. Um, and so sometimes it's a doctor that kind of notices symptoms, or even a family member is saying that they're concerned about you. The second thing is like someone in your life who cares about you is saying that they just don't feel you care about them. You know, like, um, and you're like, what? Like, I, everything I do is to care about you. But somehow there's like this incongruence or this disconnect and you're hearing somebody say, well, I just don't feel like you care about me. The third is um, finding yourself avoiding someone or something or like staying a bit too long at work, missing a bedtime with your kid, not making a phone call to someone you need to call, hiding out or away from others. The fourth is you find yourself more short-fused than normal irritable, um, you've been told that you're just like a little bit on edge. Uh, you have a bit of a dready feeling to the start of your day. You notice that you have to kind of pump yourself up to get going a bit. Um, a lot of the clients that I see aren't necessarily just depressed and can't get out of bed, but they're actually functioning quite well and they're still kind of hitting all these marks. They're just um, really cranky, you know, really short-fused. That can be a sign that maybe you might need to think about looking at this area. The other is if you're indulging too much in something, like work, alcohol, food, spending. Um, or if married, maybe you're spending too much time with someone like that's not your spouse. Um, the seventh is you find yourself doing something in secret. Uh, or you find yourself acting in a way that you don't like and you can't seem to stop yourself despite repeated attempts or promises to not do that behavior again. Sometimes your inner script is really negative, like we talked about that critical voice, like you just are pounding yourself all the time. And conversely, sometimes if your inner script is way too positive, like you're just kind of glossing over or continuing to just pump yourself up with um, positive things. And then lastly, um, one area is too, is that if you find yourself in arguments with loved ones that are almost cyclical. It's like a pattern or predictable cycle that you can anticipate um, coming. You know, like, oh, here we go again. I know how this one goes. That can be an area where you're sort of stuck as well. So if that inner reflection, you know, you're kind of wondering about, like, I don't know, like, should I go see someone? And, and you don't see any of these warning flags, you know, that, that can be a time where you just decide to wait, you know? But other times, like, you're having some of those doubts, and then you have also these external um, signals that maybe something is not quite right, and you might want to try to take a look at it, as I said, sooner than later. 
So in my devotions the other day, I read the story again of Naaman, the leper, who was told by the prophet Elisha to go to the Jordan River and wash to be healed. Um, in my devo devotional read, Naaman expected to be healed in a grander and less humbling way. Pride can keep you from receiving everything God wants to give you. And I thought, wow, that's so powerful. The scriptures describe Naaman as a really successful guy. Many looked up to him and loved him, and to the point where his servants even were looking out for him and wanted him to be healed. He had achieved much in his life, um, wealth, success, reputation, admiration from others. But he had an illness, something in his life that was keeping him from receiving everything God wanted to give him. So our pride also can keep us from considering a lot of things as options. Sometimes it's the simplest things that can bring us the healing that we need. And pride may be something that keeps us from considering counseling as an option as well. And as a result, we endure hardships that we're never meant to endure and never meant to do alone. So finally, I think if you're thinking about addressing these issues, you don't necessarily need to go to counseling. It's not like the first thing you need to try. But you can talk to people about this stuff. You can commit to looking into some of these things into your own, in your own life. You could read a book or you could study something in, along these lines. And if you do decide that you want to go to counseling, um, 2022 has far more options than there were in 1995. Um, in 2017, in, in light of some of the uh, issues that were coming up and we're seeing more and more the needs in this underserved Asian American population, um, we decided to start this group called CATCH, which is the community of Asian American therapists in Chicagoland. We started literally with like five people. Jean was on, um, in that group. We just met for coffee and talked about these issues. And now we're a group of a little over 50 therapists in our directory who are Asian American, who are committed to Asian American mental health and serving the needs of the Asian American community. So that is a place you could kind of start to kind of look and see the different people that you might want to contact or that you could consider contacting. And there's lots of resources on our website as well. And if you have um, any further information, feel, feel free to contact me or Jean or any one of us, and we would, um, we would love to help you. So thank you so much again for this time. I really appreciate it. Before we have a closing worship, we do actually want to have a brief, it will, we will try to keep it brief for the sake of time, because I know already a lot of time has gone by, but if we could have Irene and Jean come on up here, and we'll try to tackle um, some of these questions. We won't be able to get through all of them, but I do think it'd be helpful for um, getting some replies to some of the things that you've been asking, because I think some of these questions are really good. Um, so. Whoever wants to take it, you know, you can help yourself to um, answer and Both of you could answer them. But, you know, I think the, the one that got upvoted the most here is with things like self-care, making boundaries, cutting off toxic people, do Christians go about these things differently than non-Christians? So. I'll take it. Let's uh, give Irene a break. Thank you so much for letting me be here. My name is Jean, and I've been sitting there thinking about it a little bit more. Um, one thing that comes to my mind, and this is just coming up spontaneously, is the way we do that, the way we put boundaries, the way we, um, I don't know, set limits with some people who might be harmful or destructive to ourselves. 
um, non-Christians might give the middle finger and say, F you, I'm done with you. Um, as Christians, I don't really see that as a option for us. Um, but we might be able to say, hey, the way you're approaching me, or maybe you can, maybe the person is so toxic that you actually cannot say this to them face to face, is this, this relationship is harmful for me, destructive for me. Um, I'm going to put any number of limits on that. It could be actually the worst case might be cut off um, on the, on the, on the other end of the continuum, maybe just like less contact. So, um, and I think we do that with love and with prayer, um, things like that. So that was one thing that came to my mind. I also wanted to recommend a book from Henry Cloud, um, Christian psychologist, many of you might've heard of his boundaries book. He has a book called Necessary Endings, and he talks about kind of the four levels of boundaries with toxic people. Great. Great. Thanks, Jean. That's a, actually an awesome answer. Um, can you provide a high-level breakdown of different therapy approaches and how to evaluate a therapy approach or a therapist as a good fit uh, applying a Christian lens? So, yeah. How do, you, how do you figure out who to go to and, you know? Um... All right. I'm going to take the first part, and then I'm going to hand it over to um, Irene because of the Christian part. Oh, okay. <laughs> right? Um, yeah. I, that was the last part of the question about... So um, I think all roads lead to Rome. You could go top down, which is thoughts. Um, it, it actually mimics your brainstem. Um, so your big four brain up here is where all of our executive functioning is happening. Our thoughts, our decision making, our analysis. You can do cognitive behavioral therapy. I'm sure lots of heard, you heard of CBT. So change your thoughts, change your behaviors, change what you do, and your feelings will follow. Um, you can go um, a little bit in the midbrain where your limbic system is. That's where all your emotions are. Um, and you're going into how does that feel? What happens when you feel that? Um, what's going on? And then it also includes your brainstem, which is all your bodily reactions. A panic attack, might, you might say, would be our bodies taking over, our fight or flight systems taking over, and our thoughts are actually offline. So how do we get our thoughts back online? So you can go top down. You can go bottom up. Um, I prefer a bottom up. You know, I think that probably mimics my personality, um, but a lot of people go top down. Um, and it also depends, I would say, on what issue you're dealing with. So something like OCD, obsessive compulsive um, disorder, you may want um, prefer a cognitive behavioral approach. For things like trauma, I think I prefer a bottom-up approach combined with a top-down approach. So all roads lead to Rome. You can enter in any place. Um, and Pastor Steve, that, that last part of the question was, how do you? Uh, yeah, the, as a good fit, applying a Christian lens through, through that. Christian lens, yeah. yeah. Well, I think for me, it's like, you know, when you go to see a counselor, the, the biggest thing is that you're, you're entering into a relationship with someone, right? Um, and, you know, um, counselors come in with their own uh, experiences, and that's not necessarily bad. Um, it's just the lens in which they view the world. And when you're entering into a relationship with someone, you want to feel like you can trust them, right? And that they're going to um, kind of have the same values as you, that they're going to encourage you. And I think all of us are trained as counselors to not put our own stuff on people. But I think if you think about yourself and what you need when you enter into a relationship with someone, 
you might feel like, you know what, I don't, ever, I don't want to like be thinking about that, like, because if this person is a non-Christian, I don't want to be like constantly worried that they're, you know, not going to be able to understand me or understand what I value or push me in a way that isn't um, consistent with who I am. And so if that is something that's going to bug you, then, you know, I do think trying to find somebody that's a Christian could be really, really powerful because you don't even have to worry about that piece of it, right? But I also think that, you know, if you can't find a non-Christian, there are some really skilled people out there that are going to hold your values as important, right? Because they're trained to do so, and it, it's sort of unethical, you know, to try to, like, tell somebody to do something that's not resonating or consistent with what they believe. So, Great. Thank you, guys. Um, there's a great question here for teenagers, but I do want to actually say, immediately following the service, Irene is going to head over to the youth group room and have a special time with youth group kids. And so Catalyst is going to be invited to go there as soon as service is done to specifically address issues of mental health with teenagers. And so we'll have that little special bonus time for about 20 minutes or so. Uh, Jean will sort of stick around here in the uh, sanctuary in the narthex area. If there are any adults that may want to ask. So as great a question as this, I'm going to actually skip that one so that that could be addressed over there with just the catalyst. Um, I think this, though, is actually a, an, an interesting one about what to expect from uh, your first therapy session and how long it takes before you kind of feel like it's, it's working. Any sense of expectations you could give people who have never had counseling before and entering into that relationship? Um, first, first, um, you call <laughs> or email, um, and if we have room, so sorry about that, um, we make an appointment. You come in, and honestly, the first question is, you know, aside from some of the structural, you know, setup questions, you know, insurance, payment, all that kind of stuff, it's what brings you here. Um, and my, what I'm trying to do in the first session is just getting a really good sense of who you are, what your context is. I probably ask more questions than I typically do because I want to know, you know, a lot of your history so I can get a sense of what are some of the themes that start floating to the surface. You don't have to know what the themes are yourself. It's good enough to just say, I'm not feeling right. And we are there to help you articulate what might be going on. And we, and we, together, we figure that out. Um, how long will it take? Sometimes that first session is actually very clarifying. Um, lots of times I have people coming in just by the nature of our conversation, they're like, I've never said this out loud. Oh, I'm starting to put some of the pieces together. I'm starting to connect the dots. Of course, that's just the beginning. Um, in terms of length of treatment, do you want to take that over? <laughs> Jean, you keep giving me the hard ones. Um, the, uh, so I don't, I think that um, it's a really good question because most people want to know the investment when they're about to get started into something. And I think it's fair to say like, hey, maybe just try to go like 10 times. And then at the end of like 10 appointments, we reevaluate, right? Are you getting what you need from the time together? Um, a good counselor is going to kind of assess that all the way through and also kind of keep getting your buy-in or motivation throughout as to what you want to have change. So clearly people can come in for a chunk of work and, you know, start to feel relief pretty quickly, like within those, like, first 10 sessions or something. They might want to do more or deeper work then. But, um, it, you know, some people decide, I'm just, that was good. You know, I did those 10 and I'm feeling pretty good. And um, But 
there is that beginning period of like getting to know a person and building trust, like I said before. So that can kind of take a few times where you tell your story and you talk about your history. Um, and so that can take a few times and then really kind of digging into the things that are bringing you in. You know, um, so I would say 10 sessions is probably a good place to start and then reassess and reevaluate. You, you, you have the right to ask about those outcomes um, and to be specific about what you want to see change or be different. It's not just going in and talking, right? Because I think a lot of people think, oh, I'm, I'm just going to go in and talk. Like, what's the good of that? Like, I can talk to my friend or I can talk to someone else, you know, for, and for a lot less money, you know, or a lot less investment. Um, so it's not really just talking. Like, counselors are trained to um, notice and identify the way that you're regulating your emotion and how it might be um, uh, problematic, for, where you're getting stuck. And so it's different. Like, our friends listen to us, and they're empathetic, and they sympathize. But counselors do more than that, right? Like, we sort of assess where the blocks are, the, t the stories you're telling yourself that are making you stuck, or even just, like, the areas of emotion that you're trying to avoid, right? Because a lot of uh, problems that happen are because we're trying not to feel something, right? It's scary. You know, no one's ever been there with us in those places. And so counselors, the, you know, we're supposed to be with you in those moments and help you to kind of uh, go into uncharted territories not alone, right, but somebody that's sort of by your side in that process. So, I think there's a lot of awesome questions here, but for the sake of time, I'm just going to limit it to one last one here. And then afterward, if you really have a pressing question that you felt wasn't addressed, like I said, you could go to Jean afterwards and, and probably talk to her as soon as service is concluded. But maybe we'll just end with this last one then is, from your experience, do you believe everyone needs counseling and can benefit from it? Any thoughts on that? I'm biased. <laughs> so, um, I think everyone could benefit from it. Does everybody need it? Probably not. Um, can everyone benefit from it at some point in their lives? Absolutely. It's like I see a lot of parallels to going to a medical doctor or a physical doctor. You could go through your life without seeing one, but would you want to? Like, you know, um, or when there's a problem, you should seek out help. So I don't know anyone who, in the course of a lifetime, don't come up with some stuck point, you know, speed bump, something that's not quite working right. Um, you can also just come and ask questions and be like, hey, is this a place for me? And there's a couple times when I'm like, hey, I, you know, I think you actually need to go over here. Um, and they're like, okay. So, like, yeah, I think like uh, what, what people need is very subjective, right? Like everybody has to decide internally what's a legitimate need or when you need something. <laughs> so, you know, like I, I, my, you know, I might need to, I might feel like I need to go to the gym and, and uh, pay for an expensive gym membership, right? Other people might say they, oh, I don't, I'm fine, I just have my gym shoes and I run every day, right? That's fine. So like you deciding um, what you need is kind of a very, it's a subjective thing where you have to just ask yourself, um, is this something that you can benefit from? But clearly, like as Jean said, um, most of the time organizing and getting to a different place in something, you can benefit from talking to someone to kind of help you think through it. Because if you could do it on your own, you would be doing it, right? And so there is something therapeutic and very like healing about externalizing what you're experiencing on the inside, like saying it out loud to another human being, 
right? And then also or them helping you to organize it. Because what I see happening is when you haven't had a lot of emotional conversation, you're a bit disorganized in that emotion, and then you just get kind of flooded with it, and then you try to shove it down, or maybe you act it out in some other way. And so somebody else kind of being with you to help you organize those feelings is, I think, the power behind going in to see someone for counseling. So. I would really, as we close here, just give a final endorsement to really, if you feel that you're sort of on that fence and wondering if you should get counseling to, to do it, what I would say is this, is in my pastoral counseling, it's so regular that I actually recommend professional counseling to the people that I am help working with. But I would say in my own estimation, maybe 60, 70% of the people never contact the reference I, or referral I give to them. And so I, I recognize there's a lot of hesitancy there. But of the people who actually take the risk and go and make that appointment, I would say the vast majority of the times they're like, I don't know why I waited so long. You know, it's been such a positive experience for them. And, you know, even when we as pastors and counselors meet together, we do these case studies and we talk through sort of hypothetical situations of helping people. And I'm always struck when I'm, I see it through a pastor's lens, but often when I see them as from a therapist's lens share uh, some insights into how they would help that person. I'm always like, oh, wow, that's really good, you know? And I, I realize that just pastors and therapists think differently, and yet we're trying to achieve the same goal of helping that person. And so I, I just wanted to really encourage you to do so. One of the things that we as the elders of the church have done is to set aside some of our budget. In fact, we don't ever want money to be the thing that stops you. And so if you really feel you need counseling help, but you just can't afford it, you don't have insurance, your insurance won't cover it, please talk to one of the pastors, and we can definitely help you with even some financial assistance to at least get that counseling started, but to seek that help if you really need it, okay? And so why don't we just give a hand to Irene and Jean for their time that they've given to us here, and uh, let's do that. Thank you.